Now I uh, want to turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we go uh, verse by verse through passages in the Bible, and so you're going to need a Bible if you don't have one. There are hardback ones in the, in the back that we'd love for you to use today or have. Take it home if you don't own a Bible. And because uh, we want you to follow along, there's not going to be really verses on the screen as much as just uh, us walking through the text. So grab a Bible, flip to Ephesians chapter 2, give you a little bit of context, and then we will read the first 10 verses. See, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus while he was imprisoned in Rome around 60 A.D., And Paul planted these churches in Ephesus in Acts chapter 9. So if you want to know the origin story of this church, you can go read Acts chapter 19. Sorry, did I say 9? Acts chapter 19. He planted these churches. He established elders. He moved on. And now he's writing back with some further instruction. And we have some rich teaching in uh, the book of Ephesians. Um, and uh, one of the best passages in here in chapter 2. So let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, and then we will pray. Are you ready? All right. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for just gathering us together this morning uh, after a week of thankfulness and uh, good food and family and friends. Father, that we get to spend some time together in your word. I thank you for your spirit already at work in this place, allowing us to enter into your presence and sing your praises, God. I pray that you would now speak to us through your word, that your spirit would uh, give us understanding and enlighten us to hear what you want us to hear. I pray that you would call um, dead things to life this morning. Help us to see the beauty of your grace and uh, to worship you for it. We love you, Lord. Please guide my speech, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 is a foundational passage in the Christian faith. 
Um, we, uh, I, I've preached this passage before uh, while preaching through the book of Ephesians uh, in 2020. We went verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and so I've already preached this passage before. And then Jared, um, uh, our, our youth pastor here, he chose to preach this passage as his first sermon of September of last year. And so this passage recently in the last few years has been preached twice from this stage. So why would I choose this passage? Well, one reason is because um, I have also preached, I've preached the entire reading plan before. And so no matter what I chose, it would be something that I've talked about before. But this passage is a foundational passage to our understanding of how we are saved. And it is important for us to be uh, reminded uh, about it. Because if you read the Bible, there's some passages where you get the idea where it seems like that you, we are kind of saved by our works. And so you can have misunderstanding about what, what actually saves us. And the reason why there's passages like that is because there was just this assumption that whenever you came to Christ, you, it would change your life. And so there's passages that, that the changed life is so closely connected to the salvation that it's hard to discern what actually saved them, their works or their faith. So without this passage, this passage gives tremendous clarity to how we are saved. That we are saved by grace through faith. This passage really shows three different dimensions of God's grace. God's grace in our past, God's grace in the present, and God's grace for our future. And uh, I've taught this, this a method of telling your story before. A method of telling your story where like, if you're going to share how you came to Christ with someone else... One method that I've taught is this, I was but God and now. I was but God. I was like this before Christ, but God, this is how he saved me. And now this is how I've been changed since coming to Christ. And this time around, as I was reading through Ephesians 2, I noticed that that model fit perfectly into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I was... But God, and now we see what we were before Christ, how God saved us, and how it has changed us. And so that's going to be the outline for today. Let's dive in. The first is, I was. The first three verses describe the life of a person before Christ. And the first sub-point, or whatever, is, is, I was unable to save myself. Look at verse 1. I was unable to save myself. Verse 1. Um, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, trespasses is, is knowing a command and intentionally um, breaking it. Trespassing is... Um, let's see if I have some definition. Knowing and breaking a command to trespass is to a deliberate action. It means to cross a known boundary. It's a willful act of disobedience. 
But sin is an archery term just to means to miss the mark. And so if you have in your mind that I haven't broken any of God's command knowingly or willingly, I haven't trespassed against God, he's like, well, you're also dead in your sins, which means just because, just because you're born in sin, your whole life is one of missing the mark of God's glorious standard. Point 1A, I was unable to save myself because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So why are we dead? Well, he's obviously talking about a spiritual death because he's talking about dead in trespasses and sins as a spiritual thing. But if we remember back to the very beginning in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and he told them, hey, here's the garden. Everything was perfect. They were in perfect fellowship and communion with God. And he said, you can have everything, eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 17. If you eat of the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. And as you read the story, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they don't surely die. And so then you wonder, did God lie? Well, he didn't lie because they did die spiritually. Immediately, their unbroken communion with God was now broken, and there was a spiritual death to their soul. And from that moment on, they only gave birth to spiritually dead children. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And so we have inherited this sin nature from our father, Adam. And we are spiritually dead in sin. Warren Wearsby said that the unbeliever is not sick. He is dead. He does not need re uh, resuscitation. He needs a resurrection. All lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The point here being that I am totally unable to save myself. I need someone outside of myself to act on my behalf to save me because I'm dead. And dead people don't do very much. I'm unable to save myself. The Point one B there then is I am undeserving of salvation. So I was unable to save myself, but then I was undeserving of salvation. Verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You walked in sin. It was an active lifestyle for you and um, and then he's, he gives these things that we're following. Like, by nature, you're a follower. You follow some things. We're being led all the time by someone or something. And here he describes three things, negative, evil influences in our life. The first one is the world. He says, following the course of this world. The world is not simply just the planet. It is uh, the systems, the values of this world. You were born with an overwhelming desire to fit in. 
that I, I, I thought and I spoke and I acted like the world. My goals were worldly. My views on things were just like the world. So I viewed uh, marriage and divorce just like the world did. I viewed sexuality and abortion like the world. I viewed money and possessions like the world. Get all I can. Can all you get. Sit on the can. I viewed parenting like the world views parenting. Careers, my career, like the world views my career. I, I, my views were in totally in line and influenced by the world. Now, Christians, this is even a danger for us because in um, Romans 12, 2, he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world. The patterns, the systems, the values, the thinking of the world. Don't, be, don't let it conform you to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's speaking to believers there. So the world, systems and values influence us. How many in the church are so worldly in their thinking? And secondly, the devil, he says, the prince of the power of the air, that there is um, behind the world system is a spiritual leader. His name is Satan. Here he says the prince of the power of the air in John 12, 31. He's called the ruler of this world. In Matthew 9, 31, he's called the prince of demons. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the god of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, We know that the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so behind the world's systems and values is a spiritual leader named the devil, and he is now controlling and influencing and leading and And it says that you're following him. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as following Satan, but that's exactly what we're doing whenever we choose to sin against God. We're not choosing to follow God. We're choosing to follow his enemy, Satan. Now, Satan Satan worship um, is a lot more subtle uh, than you would think. Satan worships a lot more subtle than just like black clothing and eyeliner and pentagrams and spells. Okay, that's, that's the kind of overt uh, Satanism. But I think oftentimes it actually works out a lot simpler and following Satan looks more like pride. Like you think you're better than others or you think that Somehow you're deserving of salvation. I think that's what he's pointing at here. That that I think that somehow God chose me because there was something special in me. He looked at me and had a little twinkle in his eye. He said, he's special, I'll have him. I'll have her. And he's like, nope, that rooted in pride and it's because you're following Satan. How do I know if I'm following Satan? Well, he says that you're sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Now, what that means is a son, typically, a son of someone is someone who looks like them. You look at my sons. I have two twin. They look, you look at baby pictures of me. They look like me. And so what he's saying is you're sons of disobedience, meaning your life looks like one in disobedience to God. It's not one in humble obedience to God. It's one in active disobedience to God. And so you're following the world and the devil. And the last one is the flesh. He says, verse 3, 
the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the passions of our flesh. You love sin. You do what you want, and you want to do things that are against what God wants. See, a big problem in our life is the things that we want to do. Uh, I think it's easy for us any time that we fall into a sin or am tempted in some way or, or, um, or, or I do something bad or I think something bad. You know what we do? We blame the devil. Oh, that devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Oh, that devil, he's really attacking me. But what he says here is sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's the things that you want to do. James 4 uh, one through three says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you, 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 you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's like, all the conflict in your life is because you have these passions that are at war within you. And we got to be careful uh, with the passions that we follow. Look, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Why does he say that? Because if you consider yourself as uh, your being, being three parts, your, your body and your soul or your mind and your spirit. So if we have, see in the, in the Bible, so oftentimes mind and heart would be kind of synonymous. What we think of the mind, they might describe as the heart in biblical times. And so he, he's saying, if you are body, soul, or mind, and spirit, but you are spiritually dead, you have no other option but to give into and follow the passions of your body and your mind. And so then I, I just I give in to all the things that my body wants to do. If you can think of all the sins you can do with your body, and then all the sins even in my mind and in my heart. You're just following those things. Um, but once you've been made spiritually alive, and now you have your body, your soul, and your spirit alive, I can then now uh, follow the spirit of God and not have to give into the desires of my flesh. See, one mark of the unconverted person is acting on all your desires. See, the world says if you feel it, do it. The world says it's who, it's who you really are. Um, but the truth is that many of our desires are wicked and they're opposed to the life of your soul and they're opposed to true human flourishing. They lead to death. And so, you're following external influences, the, the, the devil and the, and the world, and you're following internal influences, your flesh, and these three are enemies of your soul. So pay attention to what you're following. Where are these influences leading me? Verse 3, 
He says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were children of wrath. See, wrath is the just end of all who rebel against the author of life. If uh, God is the author of life, if you rebel against him, the logical conclusion is that you're destined for eternal death. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you're, you're born by nature, he says, a child of wrath. Not all are born children of God, although we like to, to say that. You're born as a child of wrath. So it's interesting, according to this text, it seems like your father is disobedience and your mother is wrath. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And you thought your Thanksgiving had some drama, right? He says, and just like the rest of mankind, no one is escaping this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were born this way by nature, children of wrath. The world says, it's interesting because the world says you were born this way. It's who you really are. It's, it's, it's your nature. You should, you should give in to it. You should submit to it. You're born this way. And the truth is, yes, you were born this way. That's what I don't get about the whole Christian argument of trying to argue against people who say that, that uh, certain uh, sexual orientations, they're born that way, and so we want to argue, you weren't born that way. No, you weren't. There's no way you were born that way. And my position is, yeah, you were born. Maybe you were born that way. Right? You're born by nature a child of wrath. You were born into sin, and you must be born again to become a child of God. I have no problem believing that people are born into sin. It's what the Bible teaches. But you must be born again. In these first three verses, I don't know if you've noticed, over and over he says that you were. You once were. You were. He, he keeps referring to these, uh, this description as something in the past for these people because he's writing to believers. And so there's this assumption that this is the description of the life that you were. But as we consider these things, for some of you, they're not describing who you were. They're describing who you are. And if that's the case you might not be saved. And you need to place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be born again today. I'm not saying as soon as you come to faith that all of a sudden everything falls off and you're immediately a perfect person. We're progressively getting um, formed into the image of God, but there should be some progression. This should be not a description of who you are, but who you were. So, to summarize this section, you were born spiritually dead following the evil influences from without, the, the world and the devil, and the evil influences from within, the flesh 
fleshly passions and desires. You practice willful disobedience to God. You live in sin and you're headed toward the wrath of God. You are utterly undeserving of salvation and unable to save yourself. It sounds like you're in a pickle. And we were. But God. That's the next thing he says. But God. Verse 4. Being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If God would not have intervened. We would remain dead in our sin. So but here. Like in. English language, it's contrasting these two ideas. That you were this way, dead in sin, walking in your sins, following these evil influences, but God, and so now he's going to describe a life after God gets involved. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. But God. There are some pretty amazing but God moments in life, uh, in the Bible actually. In the Bible, there are some great but God moments. One of the first ones in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, you know the story of Joseph, he was sold by his siblings into slavery. He spent many years in jail. Uh, eventually God raised him up to the second uh, highest position in all of Egypt. And whenever he confronts his brothers at the end of the story, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God had other plans. Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. After Jesus uh, had an inter interaction with this rich young ruler, he told his disciples that it's incredibly difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he used this analogy and said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples naturally said, then how can anyone be saved? Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God... Shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you grateful for but God moments in life? We're saying it today. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I was a wretch, and he saved me. So, here's some but God moments in the text. But God is capable and compassionate to save. So, I am unable and undeserving 
But God is capable and compassionate. Look at verse 4 again with me. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Notice He's rich in mercy. He has abundance of mercy. You can never exhaust the mercies of God. Lamentations 3 says that His mercies are new every morning. So like Jeff Bezos is rich in money, like Elon Musk is rich in rockets. You can be rich in patience, like my wife with me. You can be rich in good looks, like myself. <laughs> but God is rich in mercy. And so He's capable. He has the power and the resources. He's mighty to save. Verse 4 also says, because of His great love with which He loved us, God is merciful, not because we deserve mercy. He saves us because He loves us, not because we are lovable. And He saves us based on His goodness alone. He is capable and powerful to save. Who can breathe life into the dead bodies, into dead souls? Only God can. Who has ever raised themselves from the dead? Only God has in Jesus Christ. He's capable and He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. But then also, to be, but God unites us uh, with Christ. So, but God is capable and compassionate to save, and but God unites us with Christ. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead. We didn't deserve it. We were unable to earn it. This is reminiscent of Romans 5, 8. We read just a moment ago, God shows His love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, He died for us. And verse 5 says, He made us alive. That you're not living until you're living in Christ. But then He says, He made us alive with Christ. This new life is only available with Christ. Did you notice in this passage... He references in Christ or with Christ or with Him six times. In verse 5, uh, He says, He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, He says, He raised us up with Him. And verse 6 again, He says, He seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. With Him, in Him, with Him. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with Him. How does He seat us? You ever, you ever wonder that as you read this? How does He seat us with Him in heavenly places? He's there. I'm here. How are we seated with Him in heavenly places? And it's, it's a positional seating. Whenever you came to faith in Christ and He saved your soul and He made you alive, He positionally sees you as in heaven with Him reigning. So it's a positional seating, but I, I, what I like about this also is that, is that He speaks of it as though it's already done. 
And so he's not kind of wondering, are you going to make it to the end? He's like, if I've saved you, I'll keep you. And so I'll go ahead and talk about you like we're spending eternity together reigning. He, we are with him, seated with him in heaven. This is also the idea that whenever you come to Christ, you are given spiritual power and authority over the evil influences of the world. We see that at the end of chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. What does this reigning seated with Christ look like? And verse 20 of chapter 1 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he's put all things under his feet. (laughs) So whenever he says that you are seated with him in the heavenly places, he's saying all these evil, demonic forces of the world and the devil and the flesh that you are subject to before Christ, when you come to Christ, he seated you above those things, and now those things are under your feet, and you have authority over them so that you no longer have to give in to them, but you have power over them. You are equipped with strength for the battle. You have a, you have a power now in Christ to battle those things. So he displays his love through Christ and he unites our lives to Christ. Verse 5 again, he says, by grace you have been saved. By grace. Grace, I'm sure you've maybe heard it said, it's unmerited favor. Grace is, it simply just means kindness. It's the kindness of God. Um, uh, the goodness of God, the favor of of God towards people, but it's towards people who don't deserve it. They did nothing to earn it. Um, Later, he'll say it's a gift. And the idea of a gift is that it's something you've been given without payment. There's nothing, there's not an exchange. It's freely given. Expected nothing in return. It's grace. And so if mercy earlier is, mercy is the idea of not getting what you Deserve. We're all deserving of the wrath of God, but He doesn't give us that. He's merciful towards us. Then grace is now getting what you don't deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, the wrath of God. Grace is now getting what you don't deserve, which is eternal life in the presence of God. By grace, you have been saved. What are we saved from? Well, whenever, um, whenever this angel came to Mary in Matthew chapter 1 and prophesied uh, that she would give birth to the, the Savior, um, she, he said, you'll give birth, name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. So our sins separate us from God, and we will be saved from our sins. Or here in this passage, we are by nature children of wrath, and so we will be saved from the just wrath of God. We've been saved. 
I think it's um, fascinating that in the Christian culture, we so use this word saved that it's kind of lost some of its umph. You know what I mean? In the sense of, I can talk about being saved, God saved me, and you're like, oh, cool. That's neat. Um, but if, if, if I ran in here and said, someone just saved my life. I was about to get hit by a car and they grabbed me and they pulled me. They saved my life. Or if I said, I had a heart attack and I fell over and somebody brought me back to life. They saved my life. You'd be like, what? Who? Tell me about it. What was that like? Did you spend 23 minutes in hell? What was that like? Did you go to heaven? You got a book transcript? Did they give you the transcript whenever you, like, how did that work? Like, if someone saves your life, it's a big deal. Rightfully so. But for some reason, whenever we talk about God who saved our soul, it's like just lost. Like, it's like, okay, cool. And we should see it as like way more awesome than saving you from physical death. He saved us. This is like huge. And he saved us by his grace. It's nothing that we did. By grace through faith. Faith is the confident trust and reliance upon Jesus Christ. But is faith something that I can take credit for? No. He says, so he says not your own doing. Later he says that no one may boast. So not your own doing. It seems like even faith is a gift from God. You know that guy who went to Jesus and he was asking to Jesus to heal his son. And he said, you know, Jesus kind of told them, hey, the reason why the disciples weren't able to heal your son is because you know, their lack of faith. And this guy comes to Jesus and he says, he says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. I need you to act in my heart to give me the faith to believe you. So please, so even the faith that we place in Christ as, a re, as receiving this gift of grace uh, is not something that we can even take credit for. He says in verse 9, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So if you ever feel the need or, or the, the inclination to boast about something that that you have done in order to have some uh, greater standing in the eyes of God or some position where God wants to save you, that is, is not of God. Things that we might boast about or like um, in the Christian world, like water baptism. Um, one, like were you, were you baptized in Jesus' name only? I mean, there's some to teach. You're not saved unless you're baptized in Jesus' name only. Oh, you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, that's not valid. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name only. Oh, you were baptized with sprinkling? You've got to be completely submerged. Oh, you were submerged, but I saw your nose didn't go all the way under. We've got to get you again. I was, I was totally submerged in Jesus' name only and the Trinity. I don't know how that worked, but it, I got them both. So baptism is something people might boast about, um, or church membership, I'm a part of this church, or this denomination, or this uh, theological camp. Um, right doctrine, 
on secondary matters. Yeah, I've just got some things figured out. You don't, you don't have them figured out quite yet. And, you know, God's going to love me a little bit more because I figured these things out. And I've got right belief on certain things. Uh, right Bible translation, you guys are all reading the corrupted version. And I've got the correct version. And God speaks to me more clearly because I got the true version. And, uh, and so, therefore, I'm going to know how to speak his language when I get to heaven. Like God himself is speaking old English in, in heaven. Um, what, would you, what would you do if you get to heaven? He's speaking like the message version. It's like, what, God? Wouldn't that be crazy? Church attendance, I'm there every Sunday. I never miss. I, even when I'm sick, I go. Keeping the Ten Commandments, I've always kept the law. You know, that's when Jesus met, met the rich young ruler. He's like, you know, you, must, you know what it means to be saved. Just do all the, keep all the commands. And the rich young ruler says, check. I've done it all. And some of us actually think, I'm actually great. I'm actually, I'm a pretty good person. Or giving to charity. I give more to charity than you do. Being a good neighbor. Unlike State Farm. Living, living moral or like State Farm, maybe, if you're like State Farm. Not, anyways. <laughs> I'm a moral, respectable person. I'm going to boast about my education. I have more knowledge of the Bible than you do. I, I, I know some things that you don't know. And, and there's all types of things that we can, we can look to boast about. And, and here's the thing. Some people think that salvation is like this chasm. Uh, between you and God, this chasm of sin, between you and God, which Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, that he built a bridge to God from you over your sin. He built a bridge through his death. But it is through your good works that you cross the bridge. I actually heard a professing Christian uh, teach this in a, in, a, in a little short video where he said, yeah, in Christ's death, by his grace, he built the bridge to God. But it's through your good deeds, through your good works, that you cross the bridge into salvation. And I'm sorry, but that's not the case. Yes, in the death and, and resurrection of Jesus did he build a bridge to God, but then he picked up your dead body and fireman carried you across the bridge to make you alive to God and give you eternal life. Yeah, he built the bridge. And then he got you over the bridge because you were dead and you couldn't cross the bridge in your own strength. And so if you have this thing, like, yeah, I believe in God's grace and we're saved by grace and some of the works that I do. And therefore, the reason why I am saved and my neighbor is not saved is because I did the good things to get me across the bridge. Wrong. Wrong. When you get to the gates of heaven, and suppose you get to the gates of heaven and you're asked by an angel or St. Pete, if he's there, you know, at the gates, or maybe Jesus himself, and you're asked, why should we let you in to heaven? Now, if your answer uh, begins with, because I 
blank. Because I went to church every Sunday, because I was baptized, because I was a good person, because I believed the Bible, because I... If it starts with because I, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, whenever you get to, if you get to the gates of heaven, you're asked, what, what, why should we let you in? The, the answer must be, you shouldn't. But God saved me, and he said I could come. Yeah, you shouldn't. There's nothing I've done. There's no reason why you should let me into heaven but God. But God saved me by his grace. And he said I should come. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get that pop quiz when you're writing down like you can bring notes with you. So I was, but God, and finally, and now, I was, but God, and now, um, and now my life has been changed. That's the point. And now my life has been changed. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. This word workmanship in the original is a poema, where we get our word poem. It's the idea of a work of art, a painting, a sculpture, uh, literature. Uh, it's any type of work of art where a, where a craftsman or a workman, an artist, shapes and molds something into a masterpiece. And it's the idea that God is working on you, that you are his masterpiece. I have to think whenever I read this where it says that uh, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace, if he is talking about, he's going to display his work of art in his grace towards us. That we are his workmanship, in which he is displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that he is working on me, that I am God's work in progress. He's got a lot of work to do, but he's working on me. And he says, and you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were created for a purpose, and this purpose is found in Christ. And so in my relationship with Christ, he redeems all my work so that all my work is for his purposes. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved for good works. And he just assumes that your life will be changed after encountering the living God. If you've been made alive in Christ, you will have a different life. And he says that you should walk in them. Notice he started in verse 2 with, you're walking in sin. And now he ends in verse 10 with, you are now walking in the purpose of God. It completely changes your walk, your life, your, your, your way of life. So some application is this. Um, what should we do with all this? So I was, but God, and now he's changed me. What should I do with all this? Worship God for his grace. There's no slides for these, but worship God for his grace. Look at verse 7. 
so that in the coming ages I might, He might show His immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That He's showing the immeasurable riches of His grace. And He says this, so that, like this is the purpose statement. Why, why in our dead state did He make us alive and save us by His grace? So that, here's the purpose, He would get glory and worship in the end, that His grace would be on display for all to see. And so in the end time, God's grace will be on such display to us that we would gaze in wonder at how He could be so loving and so kind and so gracious to us sinful people. In the same way that you look at an amazing sunset. The other day, uh, Rory and I were uh, going to, to get donuts early in the morning. And we saw the sun rise. And it's just beautiful. And we're talking about the sunrise. You look at the sunrise or the sun. Y'all didn't think I, I looked at sunrises, did you? As you look at a sunrise or a beautiful painting or a shooting star or stare in amazement at a scene in nature like the waves in the ocean or like a mountain range and you look uh, like at the Grand Canyon and you, you look in awe. That's how, with much more intensity, we will gaze on the amazing grace of our God. It'll take all eternity to fathom His love. And those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. Just think about that. All eternity is us seeing more of God's grace. Understanding from different angles and different perspectives more of God's grace. You will never get over the immeasurable riches of His grace. His grace is meant to move us to worship. Just think of this story um, in the life of Jesus where He's invited over to a Pharisee's house and they're having a dinner party with all the well-to-do people in town and having a good time. And then this woman comes in who was uninvited. She shows up and she's a woman of the city, it says. She's a sinful woman. She shows up and she falls down at the feet of Jesus and, and with tears just sobbing, soaks his feet. And then she breaks this alabaster jar, expensive ointment and she pours it all over his feet and she washes his feet and anoints him with oil. Now the religious pe people obviously have a problem with this and, but they're not saying anything. They're more polite than that but Jesus knows thoughts, you know? So be careful what you think around him. And so Jesus says to Simon the host and says, hey, if um, suppose there's two people who borrowed money from a guy one borrowed 50 denarii, one borrowed 500. And one day, the, the person who held the debts, he forgave them both. He says, who do you think would be more grateful? Simon has to obviously say, the one who was forgiven 500. And Jesus says, yes. Because the one who is forgiven much loves much. And the one who is forgiven little loves little. What he's, what he's saying here is that this woman at his feet realizes 
how much she's been forgiven and therefore acts in such uh, extravagant expressions of worship and gratitude to her Lord. Whereas these other people who didn't realize... Now, I want you to notice about the story. The story is not that the woman sinned more than the religious people. And therefore, she was forgiven more. Both of them, the religious leaders and the woman, both had a massive amount of offense against God. It was the woman who recognized it. And he's like, if you would only realize that you are just as wretched as she is, then you would have responded with the same acts of worship. And so whenever we experience the grace of God and we see our sin for what it is, we, we must respond in worship. Secondly, work from God's grace. So we just saw that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And one good work is sharing God's grace with others. And so it is... I've received this grace, and now I'm going to be gracious to others. That is a good work. There's plenty of good works. I think most of the good works he's displaying here is, uh, is, is probably virtue, like the fruit of the Spirit. Um, it's virtue that God's creating in you, but one of them is expressing grace to others. Ephesians 4.19 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may be give grace to those who hear. And so in our speech, we should be gracious in our words. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That you've been graciously given some gifts, some abilities. Use those to give grace to others. And be rich in mercy as your Father in heaven is rich in mercy. As you're sharing God's grace through your story, remember, I was but God and now. Think of your story that way. I was sharing how your life was briefly before you met Christ. But God, this is how he saved me. This is when I came to faith in Christ. And now, this is how he's changed me. And everything is different. I was but God and now. And finally, walk in God's grace. Verse 10. Um, Prayed in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask you, are you displaying, is your life displaying a picture of, of the before man or the after? Before Christ or after Christ? Are you following the world or are you following the word? The living word, the written word. I would encourage you to place your faith in Jesus today if you haven't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the grace of your word, that you have preserved your word for us, God, and I pray that that we would receive it today by faith, Lord, that you would uh, call alive those who are dead in their sins, that today would be the day where you regenerate their hearts, that, that they place their faith in you, that they completely trust and believe on you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins and come, to, come alive in Christ. So God, I pray that you would, right now, your spirit would just speak into the dry bones and bring them to life, breathe life into dead bodies today. Father, I pray for those who are like, like myself, who we, are, we, are, we believe in you, God, that we would see your grace 
how you've saved us from the wretchedness of our sin and help us, Lord, to then respond to you in a life of worship and a life of obedience that we would work from this, this grace, not for it. God, that this would change our life totally. I pray that we'd see the beauty of what you've accomplished for us in the Christ uh, on the cross, that while we were dead in the trespasses and sins, you made us alive. By grace, we have been saved through faith. In Jesus' name we pray.